when we pick this, this graphic for the series, and when I say we, I mean I, um, it, it was on purpose, of course. Back during the Renaissance, Nicholas Copernicus, he was a, a mathematician, Renaissance mathematician. He was an astronomer. And in his calculations and as he watched the sky, he began to internally and intellectually challenge the, the modern-day thought of the time, which would have been this, that the earth is at the center of our known planetary existence. We knew there were heavenly bodies. We could see them with the naked eye. And the church taught and science believed that the earth was at the center. This idea is called geocentrism. Earth is in the middle and everything else revolves around it. There's a lot of reasons why people believe that. And we still kind of act like we believe it today. We say that the sun does what? It rises and the sun also, and it doesn't do either, does it? It just kind of stands there, sits there, you know, held in place. We circulate around. And even though we know this, even the app that's on a very modern phone in your pocket will say the sunrise happens and the sunset happens. Holdovers from a geocentric view of, of the solar system. We didn't even know there was a solar system. We just knew there were heavenly bodies and they moved around and we were a part of that. Copernicus started doing his calculations and he began to figure out that this doesn't make sense. I don't think we're in the middle. And he began to challenge this intellectually, probably with a few colleagues, but it was pretty well kept under wraps. Nobody really knew what Copernicus thought. Nobody understood it until he was on his deathbed. And on his deathbed, he had penned his book. He, well, you know, not penned, but you know what I mean, right? With papyrus and probably some ink and what have you. He had written his theories down as a possibility. He didn't even present them as fact. He presented them as maybe. It seems to me as if, in his book called Revolutions of the Heavenly Bodies, on his deathbed, he finally gave permission for it to be published. All the books published then were published in Latin. They could only be read by educated people. And published didn't mean it showed up at Barnes and Nobles, right? Published meant that copies were made and copies were made. That's what published meant. And so this idea, he wasn't comfortable really it being publicly known at all that he thought this because it would challenge the church's official doctrine, which was this, that the earth is at the center of all things. Well, some of it's our experience with the sun come up and sun go down, but some of it's stuff that's written in scripture. Uh, you can read in Joshua 10 that maybe you know the story during a, a battle one day, Joshua commanded the sun to what? To stand still. And you know, when Joshua did this, God was like, uh, dude, it's already still. <laughs> it's not even moving. But Joshua commanded that the sun would stand still and that the moon would also stay in place. And it did so for about a, for about a day. And whether you believe that or not, that's a whole other deal different sermon series and whether you think that Joshua said this and that the heavenly bodies obeyed but there is some scientific credence to this occurring sometime in history whether you believe that theory or not is another deal but this was evidence to the early church fathers that the earth is at the center of all things Copernicus published his book promptly died on his deathbed the Catholic church got wind of it and shut it down they said, this is a banned book. We want no more copies. It can't be true. We believe that the scriptures teach 
a geocentric, they didn't even have that word then, idea. The earth is at the center of all things. Galileo then, he began to look at the heavenly bodies and he began to wonder the same thing. And so he began proposing that it could be a possibility. This was some time after Copernicus. They overlapped a bit, but as he aged and as he understood his understanding of the universe, he began to propose that as a theory as well. And it got messy in his life. He was brought upon trial for what he was teaching. He wrote a book called Dialogues. And the book Dialogues is all about uh, three people, a, a geocentrist, somebody that believed the Copernican theory, and then somebody else who's neutral are all having a discussion about the heavenly bodies and how they move. This is Galileo's book Dialogues. The church got a preview copy, if you will, and they read it and they said, you know, your Copernican seems smarter than the other two. And so we don't want you to put your theory out there. And they shut it down. In his trial, Galileo recanted. He said, I don't believe it. And of course, all of his good friends knew that he still believed it, that he recanted out of convenience so that he would not be punished or put in prison or worse, put to death. And so eventually he found himself under house arrest in his home where he eventually died. Now, of course, Copernicus is a hero. Galileo is a genius because we understand. That was the 1500s. All of this occurred. It would be in the 1600s that Galileo would put his theories forth. It would be in the 1700s. We're going by centuries now. It would be in the 1700s that both theories would be taught side by side. It would be in the late 1700s that across the globe, it was widely understood and accepted that the world is heliocentric, not geocentric. The sun is in the center and all things revolve around it. But it wouldn't be until 1822, 1822, that the church would say, okay, we give up. You're right, you're right. And we, we misunderstood some scriptures and Joshua saw what he saw and he said it as he understood it. And this is the foundation of what we're talking about when we say heretic. There's some things that we believe that might not be true. There's some ideas that are shifting in our faith and maybe they've shifted in the faith of people that you know. And these ideas, of course, over history have been either labeled or named or understood to be heresies, untruths, until they aren't. And then we begin to see God differently. Is it any surprise to you that we might think that we are at the center of all things? And how much humility would it take for somebody to say, I'm not really sure how that works, but I might not be right about it. And as we push toward the end of the series, if there's a thought that I want you to carry with you or an understanding, it might be this. There's some things that I believe. In fact, we, we've had you wrestle with three questions. And the first one was this. What's something that shifted in your beliefs? Of course, this question was designed to help you and I ponder some things that we used to think and be sure about. And then now maybe we aren't so sure or we're sure about the other thing. You know, we were sure it was A, but now we know it's B. And we know that that transition occurred with maybe an understanding or somebody 
helped us along the way or something we read or we read scripture differently and we could all name something, at least I hope you can, that has shifted in your beliefs. And then we went the other direction, had you consider some things about faith that you hold with certainty. And my hope is that this list, of course, exists in your own heart and mind too, that there are things that you say, you know what, this is, this is something I can go to the bank on. I mean, if we're going to build a foundation of my walk with God, it's going to be this thing I believe. And my guess is that you have a few, maybe two more than a few things that are like that for you. But then last week we took another approach and it was this one. What is a belief about faith that you have that seems to be true? And this, of course, is a little wishy-washy for us and it seems to be counterintuitive to a strong, mature faith because it seems if you had a strong, mature faith, then you would be absolutely certain about all the things that you think and know and believe to be true. But that is not the case in the book of Acts, as we discovered last week. There's many things that they're trying to sort through as this entire population of Gentiles in the Palestine, Jerusalem, Judea area are trying to figure out who Jesus was and they're coming into the faith and these Jewish leaders say, well, you know what, uh, here's, here's what seems to be true to us. And so it feels like that they're taking some beliefs and going, you know, we're not sure about this. There's a lot that's upended right now. Jesus came along and all the things that we thought were true, some of them, boy, I don't know, they feel a little iffy to us that there is a whole category of faith and belief that seems to be true. And my hope is that as you're growing in Christ and as you're trying to be sure that your notion of God lines up with a good theology and a good practice in your life, that this category is getting a little bit bigger. And the reason why you want it to get bigger is because of the people that are coming after you, your kids and your grandkids, some of the people that don't understand faith and maybe you're coming to faith, for them, this category is huge. And if for you, this isn't at least growing a little bit with a few ideas or a few subjects, then you're going to find yourself unable to communicate faith truths to people that need them desperately. And so this, this is important. And those questions, they've kind of been the foundation of this series. Now, for most of the series, we've been in Acts 15, this, this Jerusalem council, this church going through this incredible mega shift of now Gentiles are coming into the church. Are they supposed to become Jewish as well? Do they have to go through all the Jewish rituals and laws and, you know, all that that entails along with obeying the Mosaic law to know who Jesus is and become a part of this new fellowship that would be called the church. It isn't called the church yet. It would be called the way or followers of Jesus. So what does that mean? And Acts 15 is an incredible turning point. And in fact, the entire book of Acts really is about Acts 15 and the things that surround it. The rest of the New Testament pivots on Acts 15. But if you want to understand Acts 15, then you've got to go back just a little bit further to Acts chapter 10. And so that's where we'll jump into today. Here's what happens in Acts chapter 10. Let me lay the foundation for you. It's the very beginning. The whole story in the Acts, Acts 10, if you follow our grow page on the website, then we've been reading Acts 10 for a few weeks now. 
It's all about two people, Peter and Cornelius. Now, Peter, you know, he's a disciple. He's a follower of Jesus. He's the one that kind of shoots his mouth off and fails amazingly and then finds himself in very humble places. You know, it's Peter. It's Peter. He walked on water and then he sank. The whole, the whole deal. You know Peter. Denied Jesus, reinstated, the whole thing. But then there's this new guy. His name is Cornelius. And he shows up for the first time in Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea, it's a little coastal town up north of Jerusalem, there was a man named Cornelius, and he was a centurion. So he was a, a, a part of the Roman occupation army. He was a leader. He was leading and part of what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family, they were devout and God-fearing. This may ring a bell. We said that there were many Gentiles that knew Jesus, followed Jesus, understood Jesus in some ways early in the church life or had some understanding of who God was, but they were kept some distance away from the disciples and the early church movement. These people were called God-fearers, and these God-fearers had an understanding of who they were. They knew that they weren't at the center of things. They knew the Jewish people and those that understood the beginning of the book of Acts, they were at the center, but these people were God-fearers. Now, Cornelius, he gave generously to those in need, and he prayed to God regularly. We get introduced to him. Now, in this first part of chapter 10, he has a, he has a vision. And so this vision, God comes to him and says, hey, there's a man. He's down the road. His name's Peter. He's going to come and talk to you. I want you to send some of your regiment to go get him and bring him back to your house. And Cornelius is like, oh, oh my goodness, this is okay, gotcha, this is great. So just down the road, south toward Jerusalem, still a coastal town, Peter's in a town called Joppa. He's making his way there. If you look at any first century map, you'll see him. Jerusalem, come over, Joppa, and then north, Caesarea. These are all the locales that exist today still, some under different names. Peter's down in Joppa, and he's hanging out with some friends, making his way to the city, and this is what it says a bit further in the chapter. About noon the following day, as they, Peter and his friends, were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. It was a time of prayer. They observed the same Jewish hours of prayer that you read about in the Old Testament three times a day, sometimes more. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. Important. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. Now, Peter's on the roof. Stuff's happening in the house. His friends are there. Peter's just chilling. His stomach is a rumbling. And he can hear him getting ready. Maybe he can smell the, the lunch or whatever it is that's happening. He's going to eat. And he begins to have a little nap, trance. He's going to have a vision as well. Luke puts these two people together in the same chapter, Peter and Cornelius, because their lives are going to intersect and God is going to do something really unique with these two men. So Peter in this trance, we get the details. This is what he saw. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. Interesting, right? I mean, I envision a lot of things when I'm hungry, but I've never envisioned this. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. That would be enough for me to 
cancel the vision. In my yard, not too long ago, I came across uh, a snake. It was on our, on our uh, little outdoor porch there outside our house. How many of you have an aversion to snakes? Anybody? How many of you could, it doesn't bother you at all to see a snake? Let me see you. See, I don't, I don't understand any of y'all that just raised your hands. <laughs> this snake, I mean, I was, I, it was a little tiny thing. I was way, way far away from this snake. And that's all I'm going to tell you about the story. <laughs> contain all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. This is what Peter sees. The sheet is being lowered, held by four corners. All the animals are in the sheet. Okay, you're tracking. All these animals, reptiles and birds, and then a voice said to him, said what? Say it with me. Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Now, this is a, a pivotal moment that's happening in Peter's life. He's hungry. It feels like it's not very fair. You ever been in the grocery store when you're hungry? And then you come home and your spouse is like, what the heck did you do? And so this is what Peter, he's, he's, it, he's emotionally, you know, he's hungry. He's got a void. He wants to fill it. And God tempts him with these animals that are in this sheet. And he sees it there and he hears the voice. And his response is very telling. He says this. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything, what? Peter's referring to Jewish dietary laws, and many of the the laws in the Old Testament refer to what the chosen people of God can eat and can't eat, and why. Some of it's why, and some of it's not why, so it's just a rule. And this list, you can find them, uh, all, all these laws, you can find them in Deuteronomy, you can find them in Leviticus, but they are detailed and they're incredibly specific. What animals are allowed to be eaten and what cannot be eaten. And Peter sees a smorgasbord in front of him and the voice, we assume, is the Holy Spirit or God or something deity-like says, get up and eat. And Peter says... Uh, no, I would never. Now, this is classic Peter. It's how you know it's Peter. God tells him something. He says, no. <laughs> and he thinks his no is obedient to what God says, but God just told him to eat it. And he says, no, I'm not going to do it. I won't do it. And so when you take time and you read Deuteronomy, you read Leviticus, the dietary laws are, are involved and all-encompassing. And the Jewish people had a long history of living by these dietary laws fastidiously. I mean, if they broke some laws, these were laws that they didn't break. And they didn't break them because they believed that they involved some sort of spiritual consequence or some sort of health consequence. They believed, rightfully so, that God knew what he was talking about, that God put these laws in place, and he did so on purpose. There are things that you can consume, and there are things that you can't consume. And you and I are the same way. If you were a Boy Scout and you were hiking and you saw some mushrooms and your Boy Scout leader said, you know what, you may like mushrooms, but you should not eat these because you will what? You'll die. It's poisonous. You can't touch them. You can't eat them. And you never forgot that. And you taught your kids the same thing and you want everybody to know these are not good. This, the Jewish people, dietary laws, they felt the very same thing. And if you read the laws in the Old Testament that Peter lived by and all of his family lived by and all of his friends lived by, you will read what I believe is one of the saddest verses in all of the Bible. Just a moment of silence, let me show you. 
and you may not eat the pig. And it's in Deuteronomy 14. It's, it's repeated. This is the repetition. It's actually originally in Leviticus as well. But there's some reasons, you know, uh, split hooves and not chewing the cud and all those kinds of things that are connected to this. But this, of course, was the law that they lived by. Do not eat the pig. Now just think for a minute what your life would be like if you couldn't eat the pig. Oh, it's just so sad to ponder. I mean, there are things I would never, ever eat in my life. But if you wrap it in bacon, I'll throw it down like it's just... And, and what's better than something wrapped in bacon is bacon wrapped in bacon. That's the best. But they would never, they would never touch it. And nobody knows why. Nobody knows why. God said, don't eat the pig. And some people say, well, that's because of that, you know, little bacteria that's in pork and, and, you know, you're not supposed to have that. It's a good thing God said don't eat the pig because they would have died. If, if you've read Leviticus or Deuteronomy, you know that God, God gets very specific about instructions. If he wanted to, he could have said, hey, if you're going to eat pig, here's how you cook it. He could have made that clear, but he didn't. He said, don't eat the pig. Don't eat the pig. In fact, today, Jewish men and women who are not practicing Judaism in their life have many, many, not all, of course, but many have a deep, deep aversion to anything that has anything to do with pork. And they don't really even understand why, except that historically, culturally, it was felt that this is just not good. You shouldn't eat it. And I just feel sad for all of them. I really do. And so this is what Peter has in mind, this with about, I don't know, dozens and dozens of other laws regarding food when he has this vision. And this is why he says, surely not, Lord, I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. And I won't. Except it was God that looked at him and said, Peter, get up, kill and eat. Now, all of the faith shifts that we've discussed through this series, all of the things that you have thought about that you wouldn't discuss in a group like this, that you've moved from thinking this to thinking this, they cannot be compared to what Peter is about to experience. The dietary laws so deeply ingrained, the sheet coming down in this trance, these animals in front of them, and God saying, get up and kill and eat. Peter's response, I would never eat anything impure and unclean. And then God says this to Peter. The voice spoke to him a second time. Let's say it together. Ready? Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Now, this transition in thinking is confusing to Peter it's disorienting. It, it's as if somebody took the compass that Peter uses for faith, slapped a magnet next to it, and now it's spinning around. And he has no idea what direction true north is. He has no idea how he's supposed to approach this. He's about to go eat a meal, which is going to be fine. It's food that he's customarily eaten. It's, he's not got a battle of his conscience just yet. But he's got to sort through what happened on the roof of this house and what is God trying to say to me? And why now has it 
not been okay for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years to eat this food. And God now says, nah, just kidding. It's good. You can eat it. <laughs> what is that like and why? And how is it happening? And what is he supposed to do now? Well, don't forget the first little portion of our story in Acts 10. Cornelius had a vision. Hey, there's a man. He's down in Joppa. Send some of your regiment to go get him. So while Peter's up on the roof, God says something else to him. Hey, there's some people that are coming to get you. And they're going to come get you and take you to a man's house. I have sent them, so you should just go. So Peter comes down from the roof, and he's, there's a couple men, three, they, we don't know how many. We're waiting on him, and they say, hey, and he said, no, I already know. I'm with you. Um, I, apparently, I'm supposed to go with you. And I'm, I'm sure they were like, well, apparently you are. I guess we're all on the same page here. Isn't God amazing when he does this? And so Peter makes his way from Joppa up to Caesarea. All the while, he's thinking about this vision and he's wondering, God, what are you up to? What are you doing? What does this mean? What am I supposed to do about it? I don't know what to do. How do I undo all of the training that was given to me? All of the, he had the Torah memorized from start to finish. All five books committed to memory. What do I do? He had two days to ponder it. The journey from Joppa to Caesarea, it's about 35 miles. Uh, scripture says it took him, you know, part of a day and part of the next day to get there. And so he just walked and he thought and he wondered. It's the beauty of life in the first century, right? Stuff you got to figure out in five minutes. You know, Peter gets to take a couple days and it would take that, wouldn't it? How long did it take you for some of your shifts to figure out that love belongs to people that you thought it should be reserved from? To maybe shift how you view a portion of scripture so that it made you more understanding of God's nature and character. Well, for some of us, it's taken decades. Peter gets a couple days to sort it out. And so he does. All the while, pondering and thinking, Lord, what are you up to? What are you doing? And where am I going? And who are these men? And they said their boss is a centurion in the Roman government. So he makes it to Caesarea. Here's what happens. The following day he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them. And he had called together. Okay, so it wasn't just Cornelius and, you know, his two kids or whatever. He called together his relatives and his close friends. And these are probably all God-fearers. They're probably all a bunch of Gentiles who said, you know, yeah, we, we live this way. We know that the world isn't about us. We recognize there is a creator and... Oh, it's pretty special what he did with the Jewish people, but we went in too, and all of them are there. Large group in the house. And then Peter entered the house. Now, this is no small miracle by itself. This did not happen with Jewish people. They did not go into the homes of Gentiles. They just didn't. It would be one thing for a Jewish family to show kindness or hospitality to some 
Gentile who was needing a place to stay. It'd be unusual. It'd be because they found themselves in an awful circumstance or a destitute situation. But they might invite them in. They might show them some love and generosity as they would anybody who found themselves in dire straits. But to go into the house of a Gentile, no occasion for it. No occasion for it. Unbelievable that he would do this. Something happened to Peter as he began to put the pieces together on the way to Caesarea. And he entered the house. In fact, as he enters, he says this. Cornelius met him, fell to his feet in reverence. Peter made him get up and he says this. What does he say? Stand up. And he says what? Say it with me. I am only a man myself. This is your first clue that something happened in Peter's heart along the way. Most Jewish men and women, especially in the first century, especially in centuries before, would have this understanding that they are God's special chosen people. You know why? Because they were God's special chosen people. This is why they thought that. God had chose them to work through them and do some incredible things. This is where Jesus comes from. It's the entire story of the Old Testament. So what happens if you begin to believe that you're God's special chosen people God loves you more or prefers you or maybe even is a little bit oh, showing favoritism to you, not just as a person, but as an entire nation. Something happened to Peter along the way, and he shows up in this man's house. Cornelius throws himself at his feet, and Peter says, no, 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 we, we, are, we are the same. We are the same. How many times would some of the disagreements that you have, whether it's about faith or politics or you name it, be resolved? How many times would the heat go out of the room? How many times would hearts soften if you took the humble approach that Peter took? Just to say, I don't know, I mean, this is what it seems to me, but I'm just a man just like you. I'm just a woman just like you. Then Peter says this, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. Now, I'd love to spend about 15 minutes here, but I'm already getting the eye from Josh. So I, I, I won't do that. But you need to know this. I'm kidding. He's not giving me the eye. This isn't true. This isn't true. It's not. The law doesn't say that. You can look for it. You won't find it. Law says a lot about what it means to be holy and separate, but it doesn't say that you can't have a Gentile for a friend. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that you can't associate with a Gentile. It doesn't say that. So why did Peter say this? Well, if you're going to associate with a Gentile and you're Jewish, there are some pretty big risks. I mean, you've got to go into their house. You don't know, is their house clean? Is it unclean? Ceremonially and otherwise. If you're going to sit down with a dinner, you don't know if they prepared the food in a kosher way or not. And if you're not sure, you have to assume it wasn't kosher because you don't want to show up at a, a ceremony or some sort of event that requires you to be fully and wholly clean. I mean, hanging out with a Gentile meant that you were inherently doing some risky things. That is true. And so what it eventually became for Jewish people is, I don't know, maybe we shouldn't. Uh, it's, it's better for me if I don't. They even maybe took scriptures like, you know, bad company corrupts good character. And if God's chosen us and he hasn't chosen them, what does that mean? And so all of a sudden, over time, it became this. 
And even though this is true culturally, it was not in the law. It wasn't. But this is how every Jew, man, woman, child, behaved in the first century. Those who observed and those who lived by the Jewish law. And then he says this. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Now, this, I can't tell you how massive that is and how big this is. In fact, let's say it together. You ready? But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Now, go back two days. Go back two days. Where's Peter? He's in Joppa, he's hungry. He's just a Jewish dude, just a Jewish dude, thinking Jewish things, doing Jewish life. And now he's on a roof and God gives him a vision, a sheet, a bunch of animals. And God says, get up, kill and eat. I won't do it. He's trying to figure it out. He has a two-day walk to Caesarea. And by the time he gets there, he walks in, a Gentile falls at his feet and he says, nope, we're the same. And then he says, but God has shown me that I should not call what? Say it again. One more. Impure or unclean. He figured it out, didn't he? He had two days and God in his gentleness said, Peter, this is what the sheet means. This is what the animals mean. And I can't believe that Peter's heart was so soft that the Holy Spirit was able to draw him along and help him understand this truth. Now, I, believe it or not, I'm about halfway through the message. So what that means is, is heretic is going to wrap up next week. That's why, because this last part is really about unclean and what that means. And it's important. But as we consider this, here's what I want you to ponder before the team comes up and, and leads you in one more song today. There are some people that you are likely to think that they are impure and unclean. Who is it? Who is it for you? Who are you more likely to think that about? I mean, it could be, you know, like names, or it could be a whole group of people. Who is it that you are likely to feel just a little bit maybe, oh, maybe theologically wiser than, morally more prudent than, who is it? Now, if you've thought of somebody, that doesn't make you a bad person. All that makes you is a little more self-aware. That's all. This is so important. Peter understands this. He gets it. But it would take him a lifetime to live this out. Read the rest of the New Testament. Peter struggles with this over and over again. And it's in the Bible for you to read. He has such a hard time with people coming into the church. In fact, him and Paul part ways because of it. So who is it? In culture or in your life or at your work that you don't mean to, you don't want to, you even feel a little rotten about it, but you look down just a little bit and feel a tiny bit better than impure or unclean. Who is it? This is what God is doing today, I believe, in our culture and in our hearts and in this church, is just to soften our heart just a little bit so that when we go to love, 
God is saying, draw the line a little bigger, draw it bigger, include them. I mean, not loving out of Christian compulsion or requirement, but loving. Draw it just a little bigger. Does that mean, Lord, I, mean, I only think they're impure or unclean because of how they act. I, I'll deal with that, God says. I'll deal with that. Or because of the choices they've made. Yep, I know, I know. I'll deal with that too. I got it. What's your job? Oh, our job, in fact, is to love. If Peter, in his stubbornness, can figure it out in a couple days, God can help us do it this week, next week, weeks to come. Who is it that is hard for you to love? Because I guarantee you this, whoever's outside that line that you draw, the circle that you draw, whoever's outside that line, there's a part of you that's with them and you feel a little bit lost from God's love. Whenever we love more fully, we experience the love of God more deeply, always. And so let's see if the Holy Spirit will whisper to us the same way that he did to Peter on that rooftop. Once you bow your heads and close your eyes. Lord, we come to you in, in humble surrender. There are some things we don't really have figured out, whether they're theologically, relationally, lots of things, Lord. So, Lord, would you just give us a gentle nudge wherever there's a little bit of pride or a, a little bit of uh, better than, a little bit of uh, judgmental, thoughts, feelings. Would you make it obvious to us? Help us to go through the same transformation that Peter did on the way from Joppa to Caesarea. Maybe it was his view of the, the coastal towns and the ocean that softened his, his heart. The, the beauty of the Mediterranean gently washing away the hardness of his heart or the prejudice that had snuck in over time. So Lord, would you do the same for us? Soften our hearts. Help us to replace judgment with love expectation with grace the conviction that we're right about all things with the sneaky suspicion that we have some things right but other things it just sort of seems good to us help us to love and Lord may we say with conviction that we will not call anyone impure or unclean Lord, it's your goodness that takes us to this place. Help us to embrace it. And would you transform our hearts with love and mercy.